Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as family, as we consider your special grace towards us in Christ. And even as your spirit illuminates our hearts, eyes to see Christ, even his broken body, his shed blood. And Father, even in this family meal that we've enjoyed together now, uh, this is a word picture. There is a proclamation, uh, even in the elements of the gospel. And Father, we are, we are cognizant of the fact that uh, many people have not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ. So Father, even as you have been uh, so generous towards us, so rich towards us in Christ, help us to be generous uh, even with our money, uh, Father, for the advancement of the gospel, for the building up of this church. Uh, we even think of Grace Cochran and beyond, Father. Help us to be a generous people because you are such a good and generous God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Calvary Grace. It is a pleasure to be able to preach God's word to you once again. We're going to be looking at Psalm 73, if you could flip with me there. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Rob Snyder, one of the pastors here at Calvary Grace Church. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. Psalm 73, this is the word of the Lord. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their ends. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but, but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Well, would you pray with me now? So, Heavenly Father, as we have partaken of this family meal together, this Lord's Supper, and now we are confronted by your word, Lord, from Psalm 73. Father, I pray that your word uh, would wound us and heal us. Father, I do want to pray for Pastor Clint as he's preaching uh, the ordination sermon for Pastor Josh Carey at Grace Cochran this morning. Would you hand me upon our dear brothers out there, Lord? Help the word to go forth uh, with might. Father, would you build that church up in Cochran for the, for the gospel witness in that town and beyond? Father, strengthen Pastor Josh and Julie and, and kids as they transition to that church. Lord, it is a bittersweet thing to see them go. But Father, would you go before them and bless them and give them peace? And Father, as we consider this psalm now, as we see wickedness all around us, Father, we need help to know how to deal with the wickedness, Father. We can't uh, stick our head in the sand. But Father, we need your help. Many of us are often troubled when we look around and see the prosperity of the wicked. So attend us now by your spirit. Pray that this would be clear and you would move amongst us by the power of your spirit to convict, to save, to sanctify. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been very interesting to see a hillbilly song from an unknown musician from Virginia hit the top 10 lists all over the world. If you, I'm guessing most of you guys know what I'm talking about. The song North Men, Rich of Richmond, sorry, North Men, Rich, Rich Men, North of Richmond, sorry, Rich Men, North of Richmond, as of yesterday, it had over 53 million views on YouTube. And of course, I'm speaking of the musician Oliver Anthony, who three weeks ago was virtually unknown. Now, of course, I need to give the caveat that the song has language, so parental discretion is advised. But the reason I bring it up is because there's something that clearly resonates in that song with many, many people. And what is it? What is it that is resonating with so many people? Well, I would suggest to you that it's the feelings of hopelessness and despair that the working class can feel as they are struggling to make ends meet and as the wealthy elite continue in their debauchery and they increase in riches. Now, obviously, it has to be said, there's not a bulletproof parallel between the song and uh, between Oliver Anthony's song and this psalm here. But I would suggest that the feelings of the psalmist 
are very similar to the feelings that Oliver Anthony is expressing in that song. Looking at the prosperity of the wicked. So can I ask you, have you been troubled by the growing prosperity of the wicked of the wicked in our day and the relative ease of the prosperous wicked by the pride and arrogance of the cultural elites who run roughshod over the godly and are, who are profiting immensely from it if you haven't been troubled i would just suggest to you i don't know what type of alternate universe you've been living in for the past few years. We are living in troubling times, and we need to be honest about this. We're living in troubling times, and this is exacerbated by the prosperity of the wicked. Well, this is about where the psalmist was at in his day under his circumstances. And this leads to my first point, if you can see it in the bulletin there. Despair at the prosperity of the wicked, point one. Look at verses 1 to 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here we see the psalmist begin with his cautionary tale. This is a cautionary tale. Notice he's speaking in retrospect here. He's recounting an experience that he's been through. So, so look at the text. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So you can picture, just picture an old grandfather sitting around the campfire with his grandkids and he's sharing an experience in the past that he has had. There's a lesson that he's teaching. There's a lesson here that he's teaching. And his lesson is a cautionary tale. That's why I have titled this sermon, Dwelling Upon the Prosperity of the Wicked, A Cautionary Tale. So how had his feet almost slipped then? How had his feet almost slipped? Look at verse 3 again. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious of the arrogant. So let's just clarify this a little bit. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, envy is the, quote, painful and often resentment awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. So based upon this definition of envy then, this can be distinguished from, from covetousness like this. I could covet my neighbor's nice car or any number of his possessions, but I can covet him, sorry, I can envy him, rather, and the enjoyment that he, as an individual, gets from driving that nice car. See the nuance there? So the distinction is this. While things like covenant and jealousy are typically aimed at possessions or gifts or even skills that a person has, envy is directed at the person himself. You see that there. So the psalmist then is not so much... Uh, He's not so much coveting the wealth of the wicked as he is envious of the advantage that the wealthy wicked enjoy. And what is that advantage that the wicked enjoy? Well, I would suggest to you that it, it seems to be, they seem to be immune to consequence. The wealthy wicked have an immunity 
to consequence. Look at verses 4 and 5. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So while the rest of mankind, the masses, are plagued by the grinding troubles of the world, the prosperous wicked just seem to enjoy ease and prosperity. And this reality is made worse by the fact that their prosperity comes from their wickedness. This is their business model. Increase wickedness, increase prosperity. That's the business model, and it's working for them. It's working for them. They have discovered that being evil is a lucrative business, and as they go about their business, they seem to be immune from consequence. What's the result? Look at verses 6 to 8. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. So their whole demeanor then is characterized by pride and violence. Pride at their lofty position and prestige. Pride because of their immunity to consequence for their actions. Pride at their ever-increasing prosperity and luxury. There is no effort to hide any of this. Rather, they make every effort to let it just all hang out. They're making sure that everybody can see. As John Calvin said of verse 7, he said, quote, They so glut and intoxicate themselves with their prosperity that afterwards they are ready to burst with pride. So their pride is like a sugar. Their, 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 their pride is like a sugar. Their, sorry, their prosperity is like a sugar feeding their ever-growing obesity of pride. And the, this obesity of pride just comes spilling out. The pride comes spilling out of their hearts and their mouths, just as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do they speak? Well, first they speak against man. We've seen in verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. I couldn't help but thinking of uh, George Orwell's classic, Animal Farm, when thinking about these verses. So if you've read it, you're familiar with it, you'll remember that the book sort of starts out as the animals take over the farm and all animals are created equal, apparently. But then slowly the pigs, right, through their manipulation and deception of the other animals, they, they increasingly gain and profit from the other animals' hard work on the farm as the other animals are being gaslit and deceived. What happened to the pigs? Well, it led to overwhelming pride and arrogance. This description also makes me think of the LGBTQ movement. Think about Pride Week in Calgary here. So there's Pride Month, but now there's Pride Week, of course, in Calgary. So think about the Pride Week that we've just endured this past week. The whole movement is characterized by an arrogant 
in-your-face pride, strutting around and threatening oppression to those who do not bow the knee. This is happening right now, as I preach, believe it or not, as the Pride Week parade is underway in this city. So the prosperous wicked scoff and speak with malice against man. Secondly, and even more troubling, is that they scoff and speak with malice against God. Look at verses 9 to 11. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So in their overwhelming pride and arrogance, they blaspheme God. They're so used to being immune from consequence and the perpetual growth of ease and prosperity that they are convinced that God doesn't know or he doesn't care. God must not know or he doesn't care. If they haven't received any rebuke or punishment from the Lord up to this point, they never will. This is where the psalmist was at. To make matters worse, the visible people of God are influenced by these wicked people to the point that they will not speak against them. Look at verse 10. Therefore his people, I'm taking that as God's people, therefore his people turn back to them, that's the wicked, and find no fault in them. Now I just need to point out, verse 10 has a tricky translational issue. If you're reading something other than the ESV, your translation may uh, speak of something about uh, drinking up water, God's people, his people drinking up water or something like that. I'm not going to get into the translational issue here, but I do want to point out that either rendering conveys the idea of God's visible people being influenced by the wicked to the point that they will not speak against the wicked. Does that make sense? They won't speak against the wicked and some of them even begin to follow the ways of the wicked. So, so just a question. Why is it that more and more churches and Christians are unwilling to speak against the LGBTQ revolution? Why is it that more and more professing Christians are giving in to the pressure and even starting to make arguments that these perverted relationships could possibly be a good thing. Now, obviously, the LGBTQ movement isn't the only expression of wickedness in our day. And I just want to say, we need to be able to parse out the individuals and the movement itself, right? If you're someone here who is sinning in that way, you need to know that there is grace for you in Christ. I'm talking about the movement. It is an evil movement. So I would suggest then the LGBTQ movement, again, is not the only expression of wickedness in our day, but it matches the the description here of of the wicked almost perfectly. You can almost feel the overwhelming pressure to capitulate and just give in. And in the meantime, the wicked taunt us saying, 
How can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Well, as the psalmist recounts his troubled experience, he comes to make this consummative declaration. He makes a consummative declaration. And he's, he's making this consummated declaration in verse 12 as if it's just an inspired and infallible truth. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So the psalmist has come to this exa- exasperated conclusion and it might as well be written in stone from on high because this is just the way things are. Well, that's despair at the prosperity of the wicked and that leads to my second point. Dark and despairing thoughts, verses 13 to 16. So coming off the back of his consummative declaration of verse 12, we turn to the inner thought world of the psalmist now in verse 13. So think of it like this. Well, verses 4 to 12 has has focused on his external observations and the conclusions that he's come to based on those observations. Verse 13 turns to his inner thought world. That's what we're seeing here. Look at verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So his envy of the wicked is exacerbated by the fact that although he fears the Lord and walks in integrity, he suffers. Instead of the godly prospering and the, and the wicked suffering, it's the exact opposite. And he's, he's essentially saying, what's the point? What's the point? All in vain have I kept my heart clean. The reward for his purity and uprightness is being stricken and rebuked. It makes me think of the passage from Isaiah 59. Listen to this, Isaiah 59, 14 and 15. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. That's exactly what the psalmist has experienced. Have you experienced that? He has spoken against the evil of his day, and he gets rebuked. Or in our day, he would get thrown under the bus and canceled, right? That's what would happen. The psalmist here is getting canceled. He's getting cut off. His words are being spun and twisted to make him out to be the evil villain. Now in verse 15 here, I believe we actually come to the crux of his dark and despairing thoughts. But he also comes to an alarming reality here. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call that if he speaks this, It would be a stumbling block to the people of God. That is, if he speaks his inner thoughts. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So just a little bit historical context here. You can see in the the superscription, uh, this is a psalm of Asaph. So who was Asaph? 
Well, he was a Levite that King David gave that he appointed to be the, the leader of the choral worship. So picture the public gathering of, of God's people in the, in the Old Covenant, just like this. Asaph was a leader. He was a worship leader. He was esteemed and influential. And he had almost betrayed those who looked up to him. So in our day, it would, it would be as if he's typed up this whole thing, all of these inner thoughts, the despair, the prosperity of the wicked, the dark and despairing thoughts. He's gone into social media and typed it all up, right? He's, he's basically going to say, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he's about to shout from the rooftops, fearing God is useless. It only brings suffering. While I look on at the prosperous wicked and they just coast through life and ease. So that was the message that he had typed up. And he's about to hit post-message. He's about to hit post-message and he catches himself and he realizes that if he lets it all out, it's going to be a stumbling block to the younger generation who is looking up to him. So leaders here, do you recognize the, the influence that you have on those who look up to you, on those you are leading? This is a sobering thing for myself to consider, as it is no doubt for the brothers here, the elders, and even just thinking Sunday school teachers, any type of leadership position. It's a sobering thing to consider those who look up to you. So he's not going to post the message then. He's not going to post the message. He turns the computer off, but he's still frustrated. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He is so worn out and world-weary by it all. He can't make heads or tails of it. Trying to make sense of it is like trying to do an impossible jigsaw puzzle. And he's been working on it for days and weeks and months but he's just exhausted and depressed. It's a wearisome task. But notice this, and this is important. Up to this point, he has only been looking at his present circumstances. At this point, he's only been looking at his present circumstances. In other words, all of his mental and emotional energy and capacity have been spent on focusing on everything that is wrong with the world. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever found yourself here? Be honest. Got to be honest. We are living in troubling times. When you look at our society and it just seems like things are going from bad to worse, when it seems like the madness couldn't get any crazier, but it does, when it seems like the prosperity of the wicked couldn't increase anymore, but it does, when it seems like finally some semblance of sanity will prevail, and it doesn't, when you are stricken and rebuked for speaking against the evil of our day. When you're tempted to throw up your hands and just say, it's all useless. When it's a wearisome task to try to make sense of it all. 
What do you do? What do you do? This is the million dollar question in this psalm. What do you do? Well, you, you do what Asaph did. You go into the sanctuary of God. This is the turning point in this psalm. And here it is that we move from dark and despairing thoughts to the third point. Darkness and despair turns to light. Verses 17 to 28. So while verses 4 to 12, like I said, focused on his external observations and conclusions, verses 13 to 16, he turned to his inner thought life. Now he rightly turns to the sanctuary of God. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So this is his light bulb moment. This is his eureka moment. He had to go into the sanctuary of God. He had to be reminded that God is still on his throne. God is still sovereign. God is holy. God's character does not change. God is in control with all of his eternal being. He is set on honoring his holy name. It will happen. But more than that, God is not confused or despairing. God is not world-weary. He's not exhausted at trying to figure anything out. He's not throwing up his hands in frustration. God is on his throne. So brothers and sisters, be, be aware, and I'm preaching myself here too, be aware of your contemplations about the wicked in our day that you fail to go to God. Again, like I said, you can't stick your head in the sand. We need to be aware of what's going on, but don't forget to remember God. We need to go into the sanctuary of God, even as we're gathered here today. There's a very real sense in which we are in the sanctuary of God right now being reminded of who God is, of the things of the Lord. So we can say then, and we know, look at what he says at the end of verse 17, then I discerned their ends. So evildoers will be judged. Mark it down, count on it. Then I discern their end. Look at verses 18 to 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So notice here, this is important to recognize. God is actively against the wicked. His posture is actively set against the wicked. In other words, the wicked do not stumble upon bad luck and then somehow fall into destruction. There's no such thing as bad luck in God's world. God is actively against the wicked. Look at verse 18 again. It says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall 
to ruin. You see that? So it's Jonathan Edwards, the, the well-known pastor of theologian, the Great Awakening of the 1740s, that referenced this passage in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an, of an Angry God. In that sermon, Edwards unpacked the biblical truth that God abhors the evildoer and it is nothing but his sovereign hand that is preventing the wicked from falling into the pit of hell. Now, this is a little bit jarring to our modern sensitivities, but I think it's fitting. Edward said this, quote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Now it needs to be said, Edwards here is not preaching to the struggling believer. Just, I want to be clear about that. If you're a believer here, you're, you're trusting in Christ, you're repenting of your sins. He's not, he's not speaking to you. He's speaking to the, the prosperous wicked. And he's also in his congregation, well, it wasn't his congregation, it was another church, but the context was such that there were many presumptuous people who were just playing church. They are just playing church. There's no change in their life. They're still living in sin. So to the, to the struggling believer, please hear this rightly. But if you're walking in wickedness, if you're the presumptuous person who thinks that you're right with God just because you come to church, you're sort of playing Christianity, but you're still living in, in rampant sin, this is for you. Edwards continues, O oh, sinner, Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest that is security, in any mediator, and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Here we see a biblical truth that has almost been completely lost on the modern church, and that is this. God hates evildoers and he will surely overwhelm them in wrath and fury when he sees fit. If you don't believe me, just listen to this. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. 
Psalm 5, 5 and 6? Or what about Psalm 11? The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now this is not popular to talk about, but this needs to be seen, and I believe that it's a completely legitimate conclusion of this psalm. It's something that we're being driven towards, and that is this. Knowledge, the coming, the knowledge of the coming judgment upon the wicked is meant to be a comfort to God's people. Let me say that again. Knowledge of the coming judgment of God upon the wicked is meant to be a comfort to God's people. That's what you clearly see in this psalm. It's meant to be a comfort to the righteous when wickedness is drowning the land in an overwhelming flood. Just flip to Psalm 37. Let's look at this elsewhere. Psalm 37. I'm going to read verses 8 to 13. If what I'm preaching um, is unfamiliar to you, I would suggest, I would encourage you to get familiar with the Psalms. Because what I'm preaching is actually, it's, it's all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 37, verses 8 to 13. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Now, it needs to be said that we are in dangerous territory here. We need to be reminded that we are called to love our enemies, just as God extends love to his enemies. Just remember, before you were saved, you were an enemy of God, right? So was I. But it needs to be asked then, if we're to extend love to our enemies, what does that look like? Well, I would suggest to you that in the face of great, rampant, overwhelming wickedness, it looks similar to what Edwards does in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But it needs to be pointed out as well, Edwards at the end of the sermon, he pleads with the wicked to come to Christ, just to, so you know, <laughs> right? He does that. He, he, is, he is warning people of the wrath of God, and that's what I'm doing here this morning, but I'm also pleading with you, if you're outside of Christ, to look to Christ, to turn from your wickedness and look to Christ, and you will be saved. But when the wicked continue headlong in their wickedness and do not repent, then we must be able to find comfort in the fact that they will be judged. Flip back to Psalm 73. We're going to move on to verses 21 and 22. And here we see an, embar an embarrassing acknowledgement by the psalmist. An embarrassing acknowledgement. Look what he says, verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So for Asaph, after having gone to the sanctuary of God, having discerned the end of the wicked, he came to this embarrassing realization that he had been like a brutish beast before God. In other words, his actions had been reactionary and instinctive based on his external circumstances. Like an ignorant beast, Asaph had forgotten God and was mindlessly reacting to what was going on around him. That's what we see here. But notice this too. His beastliness, his, br- his posture of brutish beastliness was toward God. It was toward God. See that in verse 22. So can I ask them, brothers and sisters, as you look around at the evil of our day, have you been like a beast before God? Have you forgotten that God is on his throne? Are you failing to trust in God and acknowledge his right to judge the wicked when he sees fit? Or have you been like a restless reactionary animal before God? Maybe some of you need to repent of this brutishness. I know I have had to. It feels like many a time. So we need to acknowledge that and recognize that there is hope and there is, this is really where the darkness and despair turns to light. Look at verses 23 to 26. Just listen to these verses. This is the beautiful conclusion that he comes to. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So by coming into the sanctuary of God... Asaph has been reminded not only of of God's posture against the wicked, he's been reminded of God's posture that is for him. You see that there? Asaph here is remembering the covenantal love of God for his people. What was the central refrain in the Old Testament of God that he promised his people? I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. After all his despair, the prosperity of the wicked, after all of his dark and despairing thoughts, Asaph went into the sanctuary of God and remembered that God is for him and that God will not let him go. Now there's something to be uh, pointed out here that's easy to miss. Look again at verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Notice that. You will receive me to glory. Well, here we see, brothers and sisters, in this psalm, before the time of Christ, because of Asaph's faith in God's promises, we see him putting his trust in the Lord, even of eternal life, life after death. So, brothers and sisters, this is the eternal life that was promised in the Old Testament, 
and which was fulfilled in the New Testament by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has made the way to the promised lands. And it's through his death and resurrection. God promised to his people of old, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God proved it. He proved it by sending his son. And let's just consider this. He sent his son into this world where his son was ridiculed and mocked for, by the wicked for his righteousness. In their arrogant pride, they scoffed and spoke with malice against him. Their hearts overflowed with folly as their mouths were set against him. And as he went to the cross, it seemed as if the wicked were immune to consequence. It seemed as if the wicked were just going to get away with it. God doesn't care. Where's God? It seemed like they were just going to go on their merry way and kill the Son of God and continue in their ease and prosperity. But it was at that very moment on the cross that the Son of God triumphed over evil. And after his resurrection, where did he go? Into the sanctuary of God, preparing the way for any who would follow. Any who would follow. Well, as we come to the end of the psalm there, Asaph now has modified his consummative declaration. You remember that from verse 12. Let's look at it again. Remember he said in the, at the height of his despair, he said, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Well, look at how he's modified this, this declaration now. Verse 27. For behold... Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So can I ask you then, I'm I'm wrapping up. Have you made the Lord God your refuge? Have you come near to God through the atonement that Christ has made on the cross for your wickedness. If not, why not? Why not? I need to be honest with you. If you're outside of Christ, you are in grave danger. You are under the wrath of God and you will go to hell. You will. Come to God through Christ today. Look at the love of God as you see the Son on the cross and defeating sin and death through the resurrection. If you want to talk to me after, please come up to me, talk to somebody else. I've got three applications for believers and then we're done. First, again, this psalm is a cautionary tale of dwelling upon the prosperity of the wicked and their apparent immunity to consequence. You and I must watch ourselves. You and I must watch ourselves. Listen to how Spurgeon put it in reference to this psalm. He said, quote, How ought we to watch the inner man, since it has so forcible an effect upon the outward character? Remember, as we speak of the wicked, the younger generation is watching us. And again, there's a way to do it. 
but it needs to be in reference to remembering God. It needs to be done in reference to remembering God. Second, as I said before, the coming judgment of the wicked uh, is meant to be a comfort to the righteous. This might sound crazy. Maybe this is a new thing for you, but just think about it. This will actually help you to love your enemies. How? Because it will drive you to share the gospel with them. That's what it does. It will help you to love your enemies. While at the same time, knowing that they, if they continue in the rebellion, they will be judged. Justice will be served. Third, look again at verses 25, 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So brothers and sisters, can you honestly say that this is true of you? Can you say that this is true of you? Or are you looking to other things that can't bear the weight that you require? Only God can. Listen to what Thomas Brooks said about, um, not about this passage, but just about God being the believer's portion. He said, quote, Oh, Christians, God is an all-sufficient portion. His power is all-sufficient to protect you. His wisdom is all-sufficient to direct you. His mercy is all-sufficient to pardon you. His goodness is all-sufficient to provide for you. His word is all-sufficient to support and strengthen you. And his spirit is all-sufficient to lead you and comfort you. And what can you desire more? That's a quote from his um, book called An Ark for All God's Noahs. Well, brothers and sisters, in light of all of this, let's say with Asaph, my heart, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a weighty psalm. It is a heavy psalm in many ways. And yet, Father, your word is good. It, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Father, we need to be confronted by this. Pray that there be repentance uh, amongst us for dwelling upon the wicked and forgetting you. At the same time, Father, help us to be comforted by the fact that you are on your throne. Judgment is coming. Help us to go with the gospel on our lips, a warning the wicked to flee the wrath to come. And help us, Father, to abide in you in our portion, our all-sufficient portion. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For a benediction, I'll just consider this verse from Lamentations. Just ask yourself if, if this is true of you. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Go hoping in him today. You're dismissed.